Why doesn't the U.S. Constitution contain an affirmative right to vote? Can constitutional reform promote political equality, diffuse the voting wars, and thwart election subversion? How can we get a constitutional right to vote if we can't even get normal voting rights legislation passed through Congress? On Season 5, Episode 6 of the ELB Podcast, I am in conversation with Erwin Chemerinsky about my new book, A Real Right to Vote. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UCLA School of Law and the Election Law Blog. On February 16th, I sat down at the UCLA Hammer Museum in conversation with UC Berkeley Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. We talked about my new book, A Real Right to Vote. Here's an audio of our conversation. Welcome. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be with you, and it's terrific to have the opportunity to talk with Rick about his wonderful new book, A Real Right to Vote. Let me start by asking, why did you write the book? Well, first, thank you, Erwin, for coming down just for this event. We, we appreciate you uh, here in Southern California. Well, welcome back. Thank you. So uh, when Claudia was out here telling you to uh, look in the Constitution to find the guarantee of your right to vote, it was actually a trick question. There is no right to vote in the Constitution. Uh, there are prohibitions on discrimination in voting. So if there's going to be an election, you can't discriminate on the basis of race or gender, but there's nothing in the Constitution. And it struck me every four years, I get into a situation where uh, the press starts to call. Why are elections so messed up? Why are there armies of lawyers getting ready to litigate over our elections? You know, what is the problem? And it really, the United States is anomalous. If you look at other countries that are otherwise like the United States, modern advanced democracies, Germany, Australia, Canada, they don't have fights over elections. They don't wonder if they can hold a free and fair election. And it struck me that a big part of the problem is our constitution, our old constitution, that doesn't guarantee the right to vote, doesn't set up really a system for running elections. It instead leaves it mostly to the states. And so I thought, rather than just deal with the small problems that come up each election, and they're different in every election, let's go below the surface and figure out what's really going on and why is our American democracy so dysfunctional. Why doesn't the Constitution create a right to vote? So if you go back to the founding, you go back to the 1780s, there was a lot of distrust of voting. Voting was a new phenomenon. If you look at the choice for president in Article 2 of the Constitution, it says that state, state legislatures get to set the manner for conducting the election. It doesn't say anything about that they have to let the people vote. And if you look at the rules for the Senate, no right to vote for senators. We didn't get that right until the early 20th century in the 17th Amendment. And even if you look at the U.S. House of Representatives, where there is a mention of an election, it says who gets to vote in that election? It is whoever is qualified to vote under state law in each state. And so there was a distrust of voting. Obviously, in the slave states, they were not letting African Americans vote, but there were many women were not allowed to vote. In some places, you had to own property. These were the original rules, and those were the rules that made sense to some of the founders. They're not rules that really make sense to us today. And yet, in the case of Bush versus Gore, the 2000 case that ended the dispute over the Florida election, the Supreme Court reminded us that the Constitution gives 
the people no right to vote for president. By the grace of legislatures, we have the right to vote for president. But the court reminds us, in 2000, and this is not ancient history, the states can take back that power at any time and disenfranchise us. I mean, that is really profoundly anti-democratic. And yet, in reality, there is a right to vote. And it is secured by federal statutes like the Voting Rights Act as well. So what difference would it make to have a constitutional amendment that protected the right to vote? Right. So I think we have to look at the history of what happened after the founding. And so as more people uh, were allowed to vote, uh, there were disputes over what the rules should be. Some of those disputes led to constitutional amendments. So for example, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment guaranteed the privileges or immunities of citizenship, guaranteed um, equal protection. The 15th Amendment barred race discrimination in voting. The 19th Amendment, if we go to 1920, barred gender discrimination in voting. So each of these added something. And I think you could cobble together from the different pieces of the Constitution that there's an implicit right to vote. In fact, in the Famous case of Shelby County versus Holder. This was the case where the Supreme Court struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act, saying that Congress had exceeded its authority. In that case, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her dissent, said, read all these parts together. What this really is, is a right to vote and an invitation to Congress to protect that right to vote. Unfortunately, the history of the courts is that they have not, except for a, about a a decade period of the 235-year history of the Supreme Court, the court has been not protective of voting rights. Let me tell two quick stories. 1874, a woman named Virginia Minor, she was a Missouri uh, citizen. She was an adult white woman. She went to the Supreme Court and she said, I'm protected by the 14th Amendment, which had just been ratified. A privilege or immunity of citizenship is voting. Missouri's not letting me vote because I'm a woman. And the all-male Supreme Court said, yes, you are a citizen, but voting is not a right of citizenship. That is really up to the state of Missouri. And then it took more than four decades until 1920 when we got the passage of the 19th Amendment. And I want to talk later about the political movement that was formed around that amendment, which was actually a positive story. But the court was not protective. Even worse was the story of Jackson Giles. He was an adult citizen resident of Alabama. He went to the Supreme Court and said, you know, it's been over 30 years since the passage of the 15th Amendment, which bars discrimination in voting on the basis of race. And yet Alabama is not letting me register to vote because I'm black. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, well, sorry about that. There's really nothing we can do. We're just a court. And it was not until 1965, as you mentioned, when Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, where uh, African-Americans were really enfranchised in much of the South. And while it's all well and good to say, we'll have Congress protect our voting rights, first of all, the Supreme Court is cutting back further and further on the scope of the Voting Rights Act. And second, the way Congress is today, it's very hard to imagine that they're going to come along and be able to pass any legislation that's going to increase voting rights either. So we need to have a longer term, more positive vision of what the Constitution should read and do so in a way that's not going to be as dependent on the courts as we have been in the past for our right to vote. I want to come back to a couple of things you just said in a moment. But before I do, could you explain what difference would it make today to put in the Constitution a right to vote? 
So my right to vote, and you can see if you flip to the back of the book, there's an appendix. It doesn't just say that there's a right to vote for not just for president, but for other offices. It does other things as well. And so one of those things that it would do is it would change the way that the courts evaluate burdens on voters. So right now, if a state passes a burdensome voting rule, and let me make this a little more concrete. Uh, in North Dakota, after Heidi Heitkamp, who was a Democrat um, who was reelected a senator by only 3,000 votes in North Dakota, after she narrowly won election, the North Dakota legislature decided to pass a rule that said, if you want to vote in this state, you must produce a residential street address. Doesn't seem like a big deal unless you live on an Indian reservation. If you're a Native American who's poor and you don't have a residential street address, you could be disenfranchised. It took six years of litigation. And in the process and along the way, some of these voters were effectively disenfranchised because they had to fight over these rules. And so I would not only guarantee a right to vote, but I would change the way that courts would address these questions. One of the things I would do is require every state to affirmatively register all eligible voters. I would require the state to put uh, the courts to put a thumb on the scale favoring voters when they address these kinds of disputes. And I would enshrine part of the Voting Rights Act, the part that says that minority voters should be able to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. I would enshrine that in the Constitution itself so that a future Congress couldn't take that away. I want to go back to a couple of things you said just a moment ago. When I said, why not do this by statute? You said it's so unlikely that Congress would pass another Voting Rights Act. But to adopt a constitutional amendment takes two-thirds of both houses of Congress. If Congress is unlikely to pass a bill by majority vote, why think they do it by two-thirds vote? You sound like the editor who I pitched for this book. That's a great question. <laughs> and so now I need to go back to the story of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And so eight, I told you, 1874, uh, Virginia Minor loses at the Supreme Court in Minor versus Happersett. And there had been a women's suffrage movement before 1874. It actually goes back to the founding, uh, Abigail Adams. It goes back a long way. But what happened after 1874 is that the Supreme Court said, this is a matter for the states. And so then women uh, and uh, men who were supporting women's right to vote organized state by state in order to get um, support for an amendment to the Constitution for enfranchisement. By the time we got to 1920, over 30 states had amended their state constitutions to give women the right to vote. And along the way, support for women's suffrage grew. I am not thinking of this amendment as something that's going to happen, you know, before the 2028 uh, presidential election. But I am thinking about something that might happen in my children's lifetime. And so it has to be a political movement. You know, people agitate about voting rights, but they don't have a necessary program or platform. And this is meant to be an organizing principle. It's something people can get behind. There was a movement like this towards the Equal Rights Amendment. It, it didn't pass, but it did have social benefits along the way. And so I see this as not a on-off switch, we're going to get the amendment or not, but as a process. And that process will educate the American people. I mean, people are really shocked when they find out that there is no affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. And as we see things that are happening today, just last week, in Arizona, 
a state legislator introduced a bill that would allow the state legislature rather than the courts to decide if there's a dispute who won the presidential election in Arizona. That's not something that we should have to fight about over every election. That should be off the table. And so we need a long-term movement to try to achieve that. I think it's a very powerful answer. But then I want to talk about the proposals that are in the appendix to your book. And among the things that aren't in your core proposal is eliminating the Electoral College, changing two senators per state, which I don't think you can amend the Constitution to do, getting rid of partisan gerrymandering. So if our goal is to be aspirational long-term, why do you back away from these changes? Well, let me bracket gerrymandering for a minute. Let me talk about uh, how I structured my proposed amendment. So I have the basic amendment, which has the things that I talked about. Uh, all citizen, adult, residents, people who've completed their felony convictions, they all get the right to vote and then the equal weighting of votes, and the way the courts are going to measure the burden, and how much power Congress is going to have to enforce voting rights. That's the basic amendment. And I propose this as a kind of minimum to ask, is it possible that there could be bipartisan compromise to actually have support for this amendment? And I give some reasons why I think that's possible. I know it, in this moment it seems impossible. But let me, let me make the, the pitch very briefly, and then I'll turn to these, these additions. The pitch is this. A right-to-vote amendment would do three things. One thing it would do is it would ensure political equality. That's the most basic thing. It says if, you're, if you, you know, fit into these categories, you are going to be allowed to vote, and you can't be discriminated against, whether you're a college student or you're a um, Native American on a reservation, or to use an earlier example that I give in the book, in the 1960s, Texas wouldn't let people in the military vote in their elections unless they were already residents before they joined the military. Uh, this man named Sergeant Carrington had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to fight to be able to get it. So political equality is number one. But the, other, the second thing it would do is it would stop a lot of the fighting over our election rules. And so I would couple mandatory national voter registration, the government has to go out and register everybody, with a kind of national ID program. And I explain how it's different than some of the restrictive state ID programs. But this is something that if you are serious, and you're worried about election integrity, this would get rid of a lot of the fights over elections by not nationalizing our system, it would still be state by state, but by taking away a lot of the things that people fight over. And the third thing that the amendment would do is it would make it harder to steal elections. Unfortunately, the story of the 2020 election was a story of attempted election subversion. And while some things have been done to make it better, and we, we can talk about that, there is still some risk to our elections. I mentioned that Arizona bill that's out there. We are still in danger. And so I think there is something for everyone. Maybe, again, not now, maybe in five years, maybe as the Republican Party and the Democratic Party change in terms of who is getting their support. So as uh, the Republican Party becomes more attractive to poorer working class voters, those are voters who are more likely to be disenfranchised. And so maybe there would be a benefit in expanding the right to vote there. So I have the basic proposal, and then I have my wish list. And on the wish list, the things that would be deal breakers for at least some on the right are reforming the Electoral College. I don't spend much time on that because there have been very many good books just on that topic. Um, Changing the Senate, which I agree with you would require two amendments. First, an amendment 
getting rid of that part of the Constitution that says you can't amend the Constitution to get rid of the Senate. The Senate and the Electoral College are the only major institutions in American society that don't use equal voting, the one-person, one-vote rule. And then the reenfranchisement of felons, which I strongly support. In the past, I believe that we should let the political process work it out. But I tell the story of what happened in Florida after Florida voters, both Republicans and Democrats, overwhelmingly supported a uh, state uh, initiative to reenfranchise those who had completed their uh, felony sentences. After that happened, the state legislature and the governor found ways to make that not a reality, and in fact started threatening people who formerly had a felony conviction but had not necessarily paid all of their fines and fees, and they were threatened with jail time. And then the last area, and this is an area that I knew very little about before I started researching this book, are the rights of Americans who live in territories, not just Washington, D.C., but Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, American Samoa. And there, there is a question about their self-determination, but if they want to remain part of the United States, there is no reason that we should have a class of second-class citizenships or even the third-class citizenship that we have in American Samoa. So I have the things that, that I would include as well if I were writing it all. Partisan gerrymandering is a difficult question. It's a complex question. And I just decided... There's only so much to tackle in one place, but that is an area where obviously um, people have strong feelings about uh, how that can distort the people's right to vote for candidates as opposed to the candidates' right to pick their voters. I said I want to go back to a couple of things you said. The other thing you said I wanted to return to was how the Supreme Court has really been gutting the Voting Rights Act and undermining voting. And I'll take the example that you mentioned a moment ago of when Florida voters eliminated the bar on ex-felons from voting, how the legislature and the governor then imposed new restrictions. And the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit upheld what the governor and the legislature did, continuing to bar ex-felons from voting. Ultimately, your amendment's going to go to the same courts that aren't succeeding now. Why believe that changing, I don't mean to sound cynical, but if the courts are the problem, how is just amending the Constitution going to change that? Yes. Uh, so a, f a few things. First, I should say that 11th uh, Circuit opinion that you're referring to is incredible, incredibly bad. The, dis the dissent in that case pointed out that what the majority said was it's fine for the state to both say that you cannot be reenfranchised under this amendment unless you've paid all your fines and fees and for the state to admit that they have no repository and they can't tell any former, uh, someone with a former felony conviction, cannot tell them how many fines or fees they might owe. So you're basically taking a risk. To me, this was not about the voting rights of people who had felonies. It's about basic due process. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of um, at the mercy of the state because, the, you know, are you going to call every place, every potential place where you might owe a fine or fee, every court? Maybe you were in that court 30 years ago. Are they going to have records? You know, it's, it, you're not going to be able to. And so effectively, they were disenfranchised through this rule. So why trust the Supreme Court? In the, as I said, in the 235-year history of the Supreme Court, maybe it's eight years where the court, and during the Warren Court era, when the court was actually protective of voting rights. So my amendment, if you actually read it, doesn't look like the other amendments. So if you look at the 15th Amendment, it's very short. It says, you know, 
uh, that um, prohibition uh, in discrimination and voting on the basis of race, and Congress shall have the power to enforce this by appropriate legislation. Very short. Mine is long. And it has specific directions to the courts. Now, will the courts follow them? If it's Justice Alito, who has shown you know, more hostility to, to the Voting Rights Act than, than anyone on the court, if it's in his hands, do I trust him? Not very much. But I also empower, in the last part, Congress to do more. And one of the things I say is that if we start getting resistance, if this country has come together to pass this amendment, it's going to look like a little bit of a different country than it does right now. And then if the Supreme Court's the problem, well, then maybe you need to change the Supreme Court. And so, you know, it's, I'm trying to think with a slightly longer time horizon than compared to, for example, the legislation that passed in the House and passed in the Senate uh, or would have passed in the Senate except for the filibuster, the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act, which I support, which would have fixed some of the problems that the Supreme Court uh, did. But I'm looking broader and longer term. I'd like to talk more about fixing the Supreme Court, but I think that would be a topic for a different night. Uh, there's lots to discuss there. One of the things that underlies what we're discussing now about the courts is the increase in voting rights litigation or voting litigation. You have a chart in the book that's quite stunning about the amount of voting litigation from an earlier period compared to the more recent period. Why the tremendous increase in litigation over voting in more recent years? Right, so it's a chart that shows how things were before the 2000 election and after the 2000 election. And it's nearly a tripling of the amount of litigation. That's a lot. And I'm just doing a sample. These are not all the cases. This is just a sample of cases. Why is it? I think that we, uh, what we saw as a country is that in the 2000 election, uh, political operatives learned that in very close elections, the rules of the game can matter. And so whether you allow people to vote by mail or you allow the, uh, someone to come in if they forgot to sign the ballot and cure their ballot, whether you allow uh, people to register on the same day, uh, all of these things have very small effects. They have effects on the margin. And in our hyper-polarized society, which we're living in now, and our society has only gotten more politically polarized since 2000, there's every reason to seek every advantage. And beyond that, beyond the, the seeking of advantage, uh, this is a kind of uh, basic thing, which is that lawyers like to litigate. And uh, some of the lawyers who litigate, I won't name their names up here, uh, some of these names you would know, have gone and had the law changed so that you can now give much higher campaign contributions to political parties to pay for litigation. So, you know, is it supply-driven or demand-driven? Some of it is about the elections, and some of it is also a PR thing. We hear about the voting wars. We hear about voter fraud and voter suppression. We hear about it all the time. Part of this is about fundraising. Part of this is about making the election a political issue. And so there's every incentive to do that. Since the 2020 election, a large number of states, especially those we regard as red states, have imposed new restrictions on voting. How would your proposed amendment deal with the kinds of restrictions that have been adopted recently? So it depends on which restrictions you're talking about. Let's take Georgia, which got, uh, I don't know if any of you saw uh, the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode and the, from the last week where Larry David is arrested for giving a, a voter online a bottle of water. That law has gotten a lot of attention for the bottle of water thing. The idea was what was happening is 
pizza to the polls. They were giving people pizza when they were waiting in long lines to vote. And this was seen as akin to bribery, which uh, was a a little extreme. And it was a little odd because Herschel Walker, you may remember, who was a Republican who was running for the Senate seat, was like doing lottery giveaways. And that, the way it was written, for for people who came to his rallies, didn't violate the law. But, But if you gave someone water within a certain number of feet of the polling place, that wasn't allowed. Got a lot of attention. That's not really where the action was. I was much more concerned about the part of the law that said that the state could take over local election offices. Now, in Georgia, it turns out that they've actually been pretty good in terms of there was a worry that Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is, that this was going to be a place where there was going to be a takeover. But they actually, um, Fulton County had some problems in how they ran their election. They made things better. But let me give you an example from Texas. Texas passed a law that said only the county where Houston is is no longer going to be able to administer its own elections. They took away the election administrator and they gave the job to someone else who was a Republican because during the 2020 election, during COVID uh, in Houston, if you wanted to vote, you could have 24-hour drive-through voting. It was a great innovation during um, uh, COVID so people wouldn't have to get out of their cars. But it was seen as, you know, why is it only in this place? Um, The amendment would essentially require states, if they're going to burden voters, to come up with a good reason. Now, there's already a kind of balancing test that courts use, but it's a balancing test that almost always favors the state. Justice Alito, for example, has said, you always have to presume that the state is acting in good faith when it, uh, I would reverse that. Um, And also, not only would I say that, I would say, you have to give, you can't make voting overly burdensome. So, for example, one rule of thumb that a commission, a bipartisan commission came up with, um, this was a commission formed by President Obama that had uh, Mitt Romney's lawyer and his lawyer together and, and a bunch of experts. They said, on election day, people should not have to wait in line more than 30 minutes to be able to vote. And that's a good benchmark. So I don't have that exact thing in the constitutional amendment, but that's the idea, is that voters should not be subject to really burdensome things. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to give everybody an absentee ballot. It doesn't mean you have to have three weeks rather than two weeks of early voting, but you have to have meaningful voting opportunities for people. Could you give some more examples of the kind of restrictions that exist now that wouldn't be allowed under your right to vote? Well, so I gave you the example of the, um, the residential street address. Served no purpose. Uh, take another example from Texas. Uh, Texas has a voter identification law. I'm not opposed to voter identification laws if they're done fairly, but in Texas, if you have a concealed weapons permit, that's a valid ID. But if you have a student, uh, a college student identification, that's not allowed as an ID. That would not be allowed. Uh, So that's another example. In states that don't allow a voter to cure their, their ballot, I think that would be unconstitutional. So you know, when we vote, and this is true for California as well, if you vote by mail, you're much more likely to be inadvertently disenfranchised than if you vote in the polling place. And the reason for that is when you're in the polling place, if you make a mistake, the machine's there, there's a worker there, they're going to tell you you did something wrong. But you might fill it out, you might forget to sign it, uh, you might not fill out the bubble right. In some states, you need to have a witness signature, and sometimes people mess up. And in some states, if you, if, uh, you make a mistake, they'll call you. And they'll say, come on down and you can cure your ballot. Every voter should have the right to be able to do that. It would, it would violate this provision to not give people the ability to do that. 
let's take uh, another example from my book. Back in Texas, uh, there is a, um, a historically black college called Prairie View uh, A&M University. And for years, the, uh, it's in Waller County, Texas, the registrars there have made it hard for college students to vote. At one point, they said, if you're a college student, you can't register to vote here unless your parents live in the same county or you're married and your spouse works in the county. And they had to go all the way to the Supreme Court, in a case called Sim versus United States, in order to get that reversed. And then for years, there still were attempts to disenfranchise to the point that there was litigation that I write about in the book that took place in 2020, where one of the plaintiffs, father and grandfather, were involved in litigation to try and get, when they were college students, to get their right to vote. Uh, These things are just unacceptable. One of the things that you propose is the obligation to register voters. This may not be but in essence, universal voter registration. Explain what difference you think that would make with regard to our political system. So if you ask me, you know, why don't people vote? Some people don't vote because they're not interested or they don't feel that they know enough. But the number one predictor of, of whether or not an eligible voter is not going to vote is if they're registered. Because registration can be a barrier. And in some places, registration can be a serious barrier. In my book, uh, Election Meltdown, I tell the story of Kansas. Uh, there's a person named Chris Kobach. He's now, he was the Secretary of State. He's now the Attorney General of Kansas. He got through a rule that said that you cannot register to vote unless you produce documentary proof of your citizenship. That is, your original birth certificate or your naturalization certificate. So you're coming out of Costco, you want to register to vote. Sorry, you don't have your birth certificate, you can't. Right, So th- that, that's an extreme example, and it took a lawsuit by the ACLU that cost millions of dollars to get that law thrown out. When it, By the time it was put on hold, 30,000 voters in Kansas had had their registrations put on hold. If we could proactively register people, it would eliminate the biggest barrier to voting. Who doesn't vote because they're not registered? Younger people, poorer people, and people who move. And so... How would it change our political system? I think it would change it for the better. You know, one of the things that Texas said in that Carrington case, the case where they were trying to defend why they were disenfranchising military voters, they said, if we let these military voters vote, it might change the outcome of elections. (laughs) And the Supreme Court's response in today's language was, yeah, that's a feature, not a bug of democracy. That is, if we let people vote, it might reflect outcomes. Now, there's a big debate about whether making registration easier and increasing turnout would necessarily help Democrats over Republicans. There's certainly a belief among both Democrats and Republicans that it would. I think the evidence, and I go through the evidence in the book, is, is, not, is not clear at all on that point, certainly not at the presidential level. After all, this is kind of a flip of where things used to be. I don't know if um, you saw some of the reporting of Nate Cohn in the New York Times this week, but Democrats now do better in midterms than Republicans. It used to be the other way around. Um, why are Republicans doing better um, than in, uh, in, the, in the presidential election than in the midterm? Because there are a lot of poor, low-educated voters who will come out and vote for Trump but won't vote in the midterms. Right. So, you know, we don't know that high turnout is going to help one side or the other, but it does help the democratic process when all eligible people are allowed to vote. And of course, when you talk about presidential elections, we go back to the Electoral College. I mean, Biden beat Trump by 
seven million votes, but I think it's a 40,000 votes a change in three states, Trump would have become president in 2020. Although I don't think that's quite a fair comparison, because imagine if we had the election that we had in 2020, but it was with a popular vote. Biden would have spent a lot of time in California, not just use it as an ATM. And Trump would have spent time in Florida and in Texas. He would have tried to run up those numbers. So it would have been a different campaign. I mean, I, I still think based on the polling, uh, Biden was more popular than Trump at the time of the election. Today, uh, if you look at the polling, Trump is more popular than Biden. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's possible. But I, I don't think we, we quite know. Uh, I certainly would support getting rid of the Electoral College, but I think that's an even harder move than the one that I'm proposing in my book. Would you make voting mandatory? There are proposals to do that, and there are countries, Australia, uh, Italy, that do have mandatory voting. I should say that under a system of mandatory voting, uh, you don't have to vote if you don't want to. You can show up and cast a blank ballot or mail in a blank ballot. So it's not forcing you to to choose one. Uh, you saw in Nevada that none of the above beat Nikki Haley. I mean, so there is, there is a, a none of the above uh, option. None of the above might get elected president this November. <laughs> yes, uh, so I do not favor mandatory voting. I'm not really opposed to it. But I, I, my main reason for not thinking it would be good for the United States is that I think it would be very unpopular. And part of the reason it would be unpopular, and this goes back to the kind of first principles, which we, we didn't talk about yet, is that really there are two conceptions of voting that have been held in this country as alternatives. One is that voting is about choosing the best candidate or making the best choice on a ballot measure. And if you believe that, that voting's like a test, well, maybe we should limit who can take that test to people who own property or people who are educated. Maybe you have to listen to NPR for three hours a day before we're gonna let you vote. Um, we've rejected all of that, even though the Supreme Court in 1959 in a case called Lassiter said, literacy tests are just fine. That's still good law today. And the only reason we don't see states trying literacy tests is because there's a statute, part of the Voting Rights Act, that doesn't allow it. The other conception of voting is not that voting is about choosing the best. It's about the division of power among political equals. And I think that's more of the, the left side's conception. It's the conception that was behind the Warren Court when it decided all of those cases, enfranchising people under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, establishing the one person, one vote rule. It's kind of ascendant, but not completely ascendant. If you had mandatory voting, I think there'd be people saying, well, I don't want everybody voting, not those people who, you know, spend all day on TikTok or whatever it is they're whatever it is that they're going to disparage. They can say, I don't want those people voting. And so I think it would create a lot of opposition. If you remove all the barriers to voting, you make voting easy, then we won't have 100% turnout or 90% turnout, but we'd probably have higher, much higher than what we see today. When you talk about the different conceptions of voting, my overall sense is that for Republicans and conservatives, they see the key problem in our system being voter fraud. And for Democrats and liberals, they see the key problem being disenfranchising people from voting. How do we bridge that difference? It is a difficult thing to bridge in part because the evidence doesn't really matter very much. Mm -hmm. So back in the 2020 election, one of the many claims about fraud, not the Italian space lasers or the Chinese bamboo, or, there was a claim that ballot drop boxes were being stuffed with, uh, with illegal ballots in Georgia. And there was a whole movie made about it by Dinesh D'Souza called 2,000 Mules. And in this movie, you know, they're showing these ballot mules, you know, like, like drug mules, you know, people who are you know, surreptitiously taking illegal ballots and shoving them into these boxes. 
And there was a lawsuit over this. There have been a number of lawsuits, but there was a lawsuit. This was based on claims of a group called True the Vote, which is one of these groups that I think promotes voter fraud for personal gain and for political gain. So they finally, they're in court. It's the same as when Rudy Giuliani was in court in uh, 2020. Where's your evidence? And they finally admitted that their evidence was based upon an anonymous tip and they had no documentation. And the whole thing was made up. And so this was my mistake. When, when, I, when I wrote Election Meltdown, and I talked about it here at the Hammer, and, and the next day we shut down because of COVID, so I'm afraid that, to be back here again. Um, but when I wrote Election Meltdown, I had this idea that turned out to be wrong. And the idea was, if we can just have a fair and safe uh, election, any claims of voter fraud would just fall down because there'd be no evidence to support it. It turns out our election was much harder to administer than anyone could have imagined because of COVID, right? People had to social distance. We had to switch to vote by mail and all of these things. And yet uh, the social scientists and uh, election experts tell us it was the, one of the best administered elections we've ever had. And that didn't matter. A majority of members of the Republican Party believe the false claim today that the 2020 election was stolen. So we're in a very bad spot. I was telling another group a few days ago, it's like, we have to get through the next 15 years. And that's 30% of uh, the Republican Party base that is prone to believe these conspiracy theories. Uh, it, it can no longer be ascended. And we should really do what we can to strengthen the center, the reality-based center, Republicans and Democrats who are willing to look at evidence and say, is there fraud? Is there suppression? And I just want to add one more thing. There are lots of claims of suppression that, I, that are made on the left that are, I believe are exaggerated. Hillary Clinton was out there uh, you know, saying that Wisconsin was lost because of suppression. It was an unproven claim. The difference is that I think some of these laws are actually passed in an effort to suppress the vote. They just don't actually have that effect. That's a perfect transition to talking about this year. We're a little over eight and a half months from the November 2024 election. What are you worried about with regard to voting for the coming presidential election? I don't think we have time, Irwin. <laughs> we'll start and then we can go to questions. So uh, we are in an unprecedented situation, and that's not a word I... Uh, use lightly because, you know, history does tend to repeat itself, but we've never had a presidential candidate who is not only uh, relentlessly claiming the last election was stolen and the next election will be stolen and the election he won was rigged, he claimed. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Hillary Clinton won by three million votes in the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. Trump said, coincidentally, that there were three million non-citizens that voted all for, he said, all for his opponent. This was, a, you can watch a David Muir ABC News interview right after the election. They all vote. And if you look at the number of voter fraud, um, non-citizen prosecutions, there weren't 3 million or 3,000 or 300 or even 30 in the whole country. So we're going to see more of that. And that's going to undermine people's confidence. We've seen death threats swatting against election officials. We have a tremendous amount of attrition among election officials. So people are quitting. It's a low-pay, high-stress job. Why should you put up with death threats? And this does a double whammy to our system. Double whammy because first you lose the experience, 
And second, who's going to come in their place are these people that are going to have their allegiance to the integrity of the system. We've had some situations of, this is something that was not on my radar even in 2020, the insider threat to elections. People who work in the elections uh, system and are leaking software to the MyPillow guy or things like that. So that's a big problem. On top of that, you've got the criminal cases. You've got the four criminal cases against Trump that may take place during the campaign, and one of them is about stealing the last election. And we'll know within a few days, probably, if the Supreme Court's going to fast-track this or not. And you have the Trump disqualification case. Uh, and I, I filed a brief uh, in the Supreme Court in that case, not about whether Trump should be disqualified or not, but about how important it is for the Supreme Court to give us a definitive ruling, because otherwise uh, there could be chaos and violence. That I think you're going to get. You think so? Oh, I think they're going to give it definitively. Not how I would want it to come out. This is the Trump versus Anderson case that was argued a week ago today about whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court should be reversed and it's keeping Donald Trump off the ballot. I think you will get a definitive ruling and get it quickly. So I, I think I have to be a little more precise about what I mean by definitive ruling. If the, I mean not just a ruling that says he's disqualified or not, but a ruling that doesn't kick it to Congress to January 6th, 2025. That is the worst case scenario to me in terms of the risk of instability and violence. So imagine this scenario. It's Trump versus Biden too. We get to the Electoral College. Trump is ahead. It's time to count the votes. Kamala Harris is presiding. She uh, entertains a motion that Donald Trump is, dis uh, Democrats control the Congress. Donald Trump is disqualified because he participated in insurrection, and the Supreme Court didn't weigh in on that. They just said, uh, it's up to Congress, because that could be the definitive ruling. Colorado can't do it, it's up to Congress. That's a recipe for potential violence and, and instability. I would agree with you on that. And it'll be interesting to see so how the court decides. how they decide it is important as what they decide. I agree with you case. on that. I um, agree. I do want to say one more thing before we open it up to questions. That it's not all dire. I just like I hate to end like that. So some uh, let me mention three things that happened that give me at least some hope. First, Congress changed the laws that Trump tried to manipulate in terms of how the electoral college votes are counted by passing something called the Electoral Count Reform Act. I won't bore you with the details, but it makes it harder to try and get legislatures to steal elections. Second, the Supreme Court rejected an absolutely loony theory uh, called the independent state legislature theory, which would have also made it easier to steal elections. They still did stuff in that case that I think is problematic, but they didn't do the worst case scenario. And third, there has been political action against election deniers. So in 2022, in four swing states, election deniers, people who said the 2020 election was stolen, even though it was not, ran to be secretary of state, to be chief election officers, and they all lost. And so we are not asleep anymore about the risks to our democracy. We're awake. It doesn't mean that the problems in 2024 are going to look like 2020, but people at least are aware that we can no longer take our peaceful transitions of power and our free and fair elections for granted. And a lot of people are activated to be on the lookout. And I'm hoping, and the work that I'm doing at UCLA's Safeguarding Democracy Project is aimed at bringing together business and labor and different religious groups and um, Democrats and Republicans. What can we agree upon about how to have free and fair elections and how can we support those who are actually running our elections? I think that's a perfect transition to go to questions. I just wanted to see if you could speak a little more about why you think the courts have been undermining the, um, the Voting Rights Act and what the motivation is there. 
So why the question is, why has the court been so hostile to the Voting Rights Act? Uh, let me first say that in the most recent case that the Supreme Court decided, uh, most recent Voting Rights Act case, it was a case called Allen versus Milligan. It was a case where a three-judge court um, had found that Alabama needed to draw a second uh, congressional seat where black voters could elect a candidate of their choice. Supreme Court took the case, and everybody, including me, thought that they were going to uh, not necessarily cause uh, Alabama to win, but further narrow the Voting Rights Act. And yet it didn't happen. And so uh, I'm not sure why it didn't happen, but what's interesting to me is that just preserving the status quo has been uh, seen as a victory. But in other cases, the, all of the other cases in the last five years, cases like Abbott versus Perez, Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee, these cases, the court has shrunk and uh, shrunk the Voting Rights Act, and it's divided along party lines. I, this is something uh, I should have said earlier. This is the first time in at least modern U.S. history where all the conservatives on the court were appointed by Republican presidents and all the liberals were appointed by Democrats. If you think back to Bush versus Gore, in the dissents, Souter and Stevens, both Republican appointees. We now have a much more partisan Supreme Court, and it's seen as not in the interest of the Republican Party to be um, supportive of the Voting Rights Act. I think that, it, it, that that's part of what it comes down to. Erwin, you have some thoughts? So, so my follow-up question then is, there's no doubt that the Voting Rights Act helps Democratic candidates more than it helps Republican candidates. So are you saying that it's just the conservative Supreme Court helping Republicans over Democrats well, with regard to Shelby County or Brnovich? So I, you know, I can't get into the heads of the justices, but it certainly has that effect. And it didn't always have that effect. So during the 1990s and in the 2000s, for example, there were some Republicans who were very supportive of the Voting Rights Act because it allowed for the creation of very safe black and Latino districts where they could put a lot of reliable Democratic voters in a smaller number of districts and have greater influence. Then Democrats figured out, oh, you know what we can do is we can spread out these reliable Democratic voters a little better and maximize both minority interests and uh, the uh, interests of the Democratic Party. And as an example, we were talking about Shelby County where the Supreme Court in 2013 struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. That provision had been extended by Congress by a 98 to nothing vote in the Senate and only 30-some no votes in the House and signed by George W. Bush into law. That's the provision the Supreme Court declares unconstitutional. Yeah, let me tell you a little story about that. I testified before the Senate. So in the House, the bill sailed through with no amendments because there was a Republican, the Republicans controlled the House at the time, and Jim Sensenbrenner was chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he was being termed out. It should have expired in 2007, but they rushed it through in 2006 to, so that he could come in. And they did not hear from anybody uh, about making any changes. And then when it went over to the Senate, I was called by the Senate Judiciary Committee filled with Republicans. And they called a bunch of liberal law professors to say, the Supreme Court's going to strike this down unless you fix it. And that's what we said, because that's what we had been saying. And uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee issued a report saying, we think the Voting Rights Act, this part that got struck down in Shelby County seven years later, is unconstitutional. And then they all voted for it anyway. So, uh, you know, it was already the writing was on the wall. The change was happening then, but they didn't have the courage to actually vote against it at that point. I'm curious about what you had to say about changing the way we elect U.S. senators. Okay, so the Senate 
uh, every state gets two senators, regardless of population. So California's representation and Montana's and Hawaii's and Rhode Island's are all the same. And that diminishes the voting power of Californians, uh, especially when you couple that with the filibuster. The way the filibuster works is it only takes 41 senators to, to, to block any legislation. You combine those two things, you can have a situation where senators representing a very small minority of the population in the United States can block the passage of legislation. So it's a minoritarian system of government, different from the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be a check on the political branches. This is supposed to be a political branch. Now, the whole reason for the Senate was to like, compromise with the slave states and to give enough power to those states. But it's hardwired, as, as Erwin and I were talking about, in the Constitution. It is something that the, the equal suffrage for each state cannot be changed in the Constitution because this was seen as such a key part of what it would take to keep the union together. So what could, if Democrats want to do something about this, what could they do? Far easier than passing my proposed amendment is they could admit uh, Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as a state. That would add two more senators from each of those places. It would add at least one representative from each of those places, and it would give Puerto Rico, if it were a state, the ability to vote in the Electoral College. That's a and that does not require a constitutional amendment. We do not need constitutional amendments to admit states into the union. And, you know, states were just made up. North Dakota, South Dakota, why do we have two of them? You know, it was just, these were political choices that were made. And, of course, the problem is there's the filibuster and the Republicans in the Senate, even if they're the minority, would filibuster to block D.C. and Puerto Rico. The perception is D.C. would be Democratic senators. Puerto Rico's a little bit less so. But to amplify what you say... In the prior session of Congress, there were 50 Republican senators and 50 Democratic senators. The 50 Democratic senators represented 40 million more people than the 50 Republican senators did. When the Constitution was written, the difference between the largest state and the smallest state was 9 to 1 in population. Now the difference between California and Wyoming is 68 to 1. I should add about Washington, D.C., that the 23rd Amendment, and you can open your constitutions and look at that one, that was the one that gave Washington, D.C. residents the, the electoral college votes, to be able to vote for president. I looked at the history of the passage of all of the voting-related amendments. It, it wasn't very controversial at the time. And you might wonder, like, why wouldn't it have been controversial? Back uh, in the 1960s, hard to, as it is to believe, there were many conservative Democrats and many liberal Republicans, especially conservative Democrats in the South. So the kind of partisan politics that we talk about today, they didn't exist in the same way. The idea that you could just like quickly get uh, someone through, uh, get, get an amendment like this through, uh, is, um, you know, we just don't have that anymore. And the last voting amendment, voting-related amendment, that uh, is in the Constitution is the 26th. That's the one that gives 18 to 20-year-olds the right to vote. That one kind of happened by accident. What happened was Congress had passed legislation that uh, enfranchised uh, 18 to 20-year-olds, and this was happening as the Vietnam War was ramping up, and there was a draft, and people thought, if, you know, if we're going to send these people to die, we should at least let them vote for the leaders. And so the, 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 the statute that Congress passed went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court did something weird. They said, uh, the statute is okay as to uh, state elections, but not to federal elections. And so the election was coming. And so very quickly, they 
amended the Constitution. It was the fastest amendment ever. In fact, some states ratified it the same day that Congress uh, voted for it. We're out of our muscle memory. We don't know how to amend the Constitution. The only other amendment to the Constitution that came after that is the 27th Amendment, which was proposed, if everyone, you can correct me, I'm sure you know, the 1792. No, so it was part of the, uh, the Bill of Rights. I mean, when the House of Representatives sent 17 proposals to the Senate for amendments, 12 were passed by the Senate, um, 10 became the Bill of Rights. The one of the two that didn't get passed became the 27th Amendment. So uh, most Americans, a majority of Americans, were not born since Congress last passed an amendment. Another question? Well, Governor Newsom has proposed that we have a constitutional convention to have a proposal for the Second Amendment. We could have a whole discussion about would it be a good thing or a bad thing to have a constitutional convention, but if we can't get legislation passed with regard to guns, hard to imagine we're going to get a constitutional amendment passed with regard to guns. I think we should take a minute and talk about the constitutional convention. Because one of the things we're learning in the Trump era is that there's all these parts of the Constitution that we didn't know existed. Nobody knew what an, besides Irwin, nobody knew what an emolument was. It's a skin cream. <laughs> right. No, nobody knew about disqualification. I mean, that was a Civil War thing. But uh, every amendment that has been adopted has been adopted by the procedure that Irwin described. Two-thirds vote of each House of Congress followed by ratification of three-quarters of the states. But there's another way in Article 5, and that is to hold a convention, a constitutional convention. And the idea is, somehow this convention is going to, uh, is going to be convened when enough states call for it, and there are, is a big movement on the conservative side to call for it, and then it can propose amendments, which then would still need to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. Right now, most people on the left who know about this issue are very afraid I'm not sure why they're so afraid, because if they were, say, an anti-abortion measure, that's not going to get three-quarters of the states. If there's a stronger gun rights measure, that, so I, I'm not sure what the fear is all about. I can't resist a shameless plug here. I have a new book coming out this summer <laughs> titled No Democracy Lasts Forever, How the Constitution Threatens the United States. And it goes through the Electoral College, the Senate, partisan gerrymandering, and other things, and then talks about how can we fix it. And I talk in some detail about, is it time for a new constitution and a constitutional convention? So maybe next year we can come and do this about that book. Other questions? You touched on this a little bit. You touched on the kind of transactional burdens um, that can impact whether or not people will vote. And I certainly think that that's one side that the scholarship points to as uh, determining whether or not people will vote. But there's this whole set of other reasons, like motivational factors. Um, which are heavily correlated with class and educational status, where people are simply just disillusioned if they are low income. They feel like the candidates don't represent them, the campaign issues that are being discussed are not relevant to them, and simply that nothing will change. And I don't think they're wrong. I mean, uh, Congress doesn't really take into account the bottom 90% of income earners when they're determining how they're going to vote on any given piece of legislation. Do you think that... Um, you know, this demobilization or this disillusionment that creates a uh, connection between economic and political inequality can be addressed by the amendment that you're proposing, um, such as by automatic voter registration. Do you think that that would meaningfully shift how 
campaigns are engaging with low-income voters and the policy positions that they're taking? And if not, how else can we address this disillusionment so that American democracy can actually accurately uh, uh, reflect all socioeconomic statuses? That's a great question. So I have a few responses. First, I think it would help somewhat. So part of where lots of political organizing goes today is getting people registered. It's very expensive to get people registered. And lots of effort goes into that. So if we take that out, and if the government's actually having to go out and find people and then get them registered, and this is happening because we've passed an amendment, because we've coalesced around the importance of voting rights, maybe that means that there's been a meaningful shift in how we're thinking about our democracy. But I don't think it would be enough. And it's not primarily geared towards that. But there are other election reforms that could help. Let me mention one that has been proposed, fusion voting. Anybody heard of fusion voting in here? So fusion voting, they they do it in New York uh, and in some other places where uh, there are multiple political parties. Like in New York, there's the Working Families Party and the Conservative Party and the Right to Life Party. And these parties can nominate people who are also Democrats or Republicans. And so the Working Families Party will nominate progressive Democrats, but not all Democrats. And in order to get the Working Family Party's endorsement so that people will uh, vote for the Working Families Party line for this candidate, they will say things and they will take positions that move more in that direction. And same thing on the right with the Conservative Party. And this is a way to align the interests of voters, uh, uh, align, align the interests of candidates around what voters actually care about. And so it means something different if you're in New York and you're a Democrat who's not endorsed by the Working Families Party, for example. So there are ways ranked choice voting is something that's being uh, used in some places in California. There are different ways of trying to change how we aggregate votes. And I think ranked choice voting is uh, more popular in the Bay Area than it is down here right now. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see a, uh, an initiative on the California ballot at some point doing this. And the New York City used it for its mayoral election. Alaska used it for its senatorial election. It probably determined the outcome. So it's not so radical anymore. So there, there, there are things. Now, a reporter just wrote to me today about um, Leonard Leo. Do you know who Leonard Leo is? Leonard Leo, Federalist Society, has over a billion dollars now from a benefactor to use on political activities. Uh, One of his operations is something called the Honest Elections Project. Uh, It was named by George Orwell. Uh, And uh, they make it harder, they they, they litigate to make it harder for people to register and vote. But one of the things they care about the most is stopping ranked choice voting. Now, why would they want to stop ranked choice voting? Well, ranked choice voting is the reason that, you know, you get people like Lisa Murkowski, more moderate Republicans, still elected. Because... When you give people a binary choice in a Republican primary uh, and based on turnout, you end up getting the more extreme candidate. It's why California, do you remember California has the top two, right? So we're going to choose with, you know, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter and Steve Garvey and Barbara Lee and top two go on to that. You know how we got that in California? I actually uh, was, um, was an attorney working on uh, drafting uh, a precursor to that measure. It was liberal more liberal or moderate Republicans in California who kept seeing more conservative Republicans being nominated in primaries and then losing in the general election. And so it was more like the Arnold Schwarzenegger wing of the Republican Party. So there are election reforms that can be made. They're far 
afield from what I propose in the book, but that can be more inclusive and that can not only be more responsive, but they can also decrease polarization, which is something that uh, we really need to do in this country. Do we have another question? Dovetailing a bit with the last question, how would you assess election administration and the ability to vote here in California and maybe even specifically in L.A. County? I think we're doing a pretty good job here. And I would say that although there's a lot of politicization at the state level in many states, if you look at local election administrators, they're much less politicized. And there's been a great movement towards professionalization. And so every year when I teach election law, I bring in Dean Logan, who runs elections in um, L.A. County. And I used to bring in Neil Kelly, who ran them in Orange County, and now it's Bob Page. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican, and they talk about issues, and it's like a totally rational conversation. It's about, it's like, it's really nerdy and wonky. You know, the, the, the kind of nuts and bolts things that you have to worry about, like, you know, what if you run out of paper? What if there is a power outage at your polling place? Um, I think election administration, for the most part, in California is good. We did have a hiccup here in Los Angeles County um, when they moved to new voting machines. And there was this long uh, problem and, and delay uh, with the, those machines. But part of the reason that happened is that LA County decided they were going to not buy an off-the-rack machine, but design something that would be appropriate for... We are the largest... LA County is the largest election jurisdiction in the country, larger than many states. And we, under the Voting Rights Act language provisions, we have to offer ballots in, I think, 13 different languages. And you have to offer a, a ballot machine that is accessible to people with different uh, abilities, like uh, voters who can't see. Uh, so you can plug it in. And uh, people want a piece of paper because they don't trust and they, they shouldn't trust a wholly electronic voting system. So it was really hard and there were some hiccups. But I think overall, we're quite fortunate here in California as to how our elections are run. Another question? Hi, Rick. Hi, Erwin. Do um, you want to say anything about third parties and what that might mean for the Electoral College? This is the first time I'm thinking about this. Uh, so if we, move to a, if we move to a popular vote, would that make it easier for third parties to win? Is that the idea? If there's no majority in the Electoral College because of the third party vote. But then what happens, it goes to the House of Representatives. And each state gets one vote in the House of Representatives. So if there's a third party that even wins one or two states it could be enough to prevent either the Democrat or Republican from getting the majority electoral college. And then it goes to the House, each state gets one vote, and of course that's what happened in the election of 1800. And uh, we don't know what the rules are for states where, say, there's an equally divided, even number of House members. So that's another problem. Um, I was just reading a story uh, earlier today about Omaha, there are two states, Maine and Nebraska, that don't do winner-take-all. They do some statewide and some based on congressional district. And Omaha uh, is a likely Biden vote. Um, but last time around, in 2020, there was talk of changing the state law to move to winner-take-all because um, you know, every vote counts. And in fact, there are some scenarios now, if, if Biden wins some of the states he won last time, but not all of them, that we could have a 269-269 tie, even without taking into account third-party uh, candidates. The history of third-party candidates, I just saw a poll today that had 
Um, RFK Jr. polling at between 8 and 11% nationally. Uh, it's very early. People know the Kennedy name. People don't particularly like Biden or Trump. And so why not pick someone else? It's not really predictive now of what's going to happen. Usually that vote is very small. But uh, one of our former UC Irvine colleagues, Bernie Groffman, did a study and found that in 2020, it was the libertarian candidate that cost Donald Trump the presidency. And that if there hadn't been in enough places uh, some votes siphoned off against Trump, that Trump could have actually gotten the popular vote, uh, enough of the popular vote in those states that mattered. And of course, if Ralph Nader had not run in 2000, Al Gore would have won Florida and would have become president. So a third party candidate, even if it doesn't mean no one gets a majority electoral college, can decide the outcome of the presidential election. Now, the, the Nader supporters will still fight uh, when you say that and say that people would have stayed home or some of them would have voted for Bush. But I do think, I, I agree with you. I have a question about implementation. So I work for city government, and um, we all work very hard, don't have a lot of employees, just like state government people do, county government people. It, I appreciate your idea of having state and federal government be proactive to get people to vote. But with you saying that election officials are diminishing and quitting because it's a low-paying job and they're getting death threats, how do you put those two things together? So the Constitution would have a mandate, and then it would have to be funded by Congress to pay for all of this. And so I would, I would still keep it as a state central system, even though if I had my ideal, I would nationalize our elections for uh, the way they do it in just about every other country. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in Canada, if you're in Winnipeg, or you're in Montreal, the ballots look the same, the uh, machines are the same, uh, the rules are the same. That's how we should do it. But I don't even propose that in the book. I think I say five times in the book, I am not calling for federalizing elections because I did in the past. And it's just such a non-starter, not because it's a Democratic Republican issue, but and it's also that. It's because local election officials and state election officials don't want to give up their power. We've had decentralized elections for longer than we've had the United States. It goes back about 250 years. So... I would say the, this provision would make states do it, but if states don't want to do it, just like some states didn't want to create an Obamacare exchange, then the they can let the federal government do it. But someone's got to do it, and Congress has to pay. So that's how that would work. So solve the money problem by making Congress pay. And in fact, I was recently asked, you know, what could Congress do to improve voting rights in this country that could actually get done? Number one on the list might surprise you. It's give enough money to election administrators to run elections because they're running them on a shoestring, and you're asking for trouble. You know, during COVID, Congress was asked to provide billions of dollars that it did not provide. Do you know who ended up providing money to help fund our elections? Mark Zuckerberg's foundation. Over $300 million. And there were grants that people could apply for through this NGO that was working on these things. And then that, like everything else, got attacked as, oh, this was meant to steal the election for Biden. No evidence of that at all. But, you know, there were many things that Mark Zuckerberg did at Facebook that I was quite critical of in my, in my last book on uh, disinformation. But this was one thing that he did really well. But we have inadequate funding for our elections. We run 8,800 simultaneous elections for president. 
And it's only as strong as the weakest link. If you've got a couple of places where things are going badly, that could be enough to cause a national crisis, especially when our elections are this close and so heavily litigated. Another question? Can you address uh, Citizens United? Is, is your uh, amendment, does it relate to any of the, the issues of that? Does it reverse any of Citizens United? And Ricky has a terrific book about this. Um, you should talk about yeah, so that right. So I don't address it in this book, but I did address it in my book called Plutocrats United. Um, and uh, I think that the since that book I wrote, I think that was 2018, things have gotten much worse in terms of campaign financing in the United States, but it's just not a topic I address in this book. Um, there are proposals. Um, Democrats, for example, proposed legislation at the end of uh, 2021 and 2022 that would have done voting rights and campaign finance and Supreme Court ethics reform, which is something we desperately need, and a bunch of other things, um, rolled all into one. That was way too complicated for me. I decided to stick with one topic. Can I tie that book with this one in the sense, would you amend the Constitution to overcome Citizens United? Well, that is the second best solution. The best solution is changing the Supreme Court. Uh, because what the, what the Constitution means is what five justices say it means, or maybe nine justices, or 11, or 15. We'll see. Maybe one more question, and then I want to give you a chance to sum it all up. I had a question relating to what you said earlier about, um, we were talking about uh, those laws which restrict voting rights. Um, if we were to give a charitable interpretation of some of the reasoning, one could imagine that people who support those laws saying that, oh, it's like for election security, right? Like you have to establish some chain of trust for um, that they actually can vote. Um, it seems to me that the ultimate problem that they're identifying is just a lack of trust in those, um, in how the elections are conducted. And you also mentioned earlier how like there's no evidence for that, and I agree. Um, and so how do you suppose we reestablish that trust when you have non-rational actors acting? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I think part of the answer is finding people who are trustworthy messengers. So who can give a message of truth? So one of the things that was proposed in 2020 was form a commission that has George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton on it. Would that sway anybody? I don't think you know that would necessarily sway anybody uh, on either side, uh, maybe. Um, but where is their trust in the election system is with local election officials and local journalists. So one of the things I, I, part of one of the things we did under the auspices of the Safeguarding Democracy Project, I got together a group of experts in law, politics, media, and tech um, from the left and the right, and we made twenty four recommendations for the 24 elections. And one of the things we said in terms of trust is you need to boost the visibility of local election officials so that they can, on social media, provide accurate information. A good example of this was during the 2022 elections in Arizona. There was a problem with the way some of the machines were calibrated and uh, some people were not able to vote in some precincts for just a few hours. But on social media, it started blowing up that there's, you know, someone's tampering with the election. And the election officials and one of the people from the Board of Supervisors, a guy named Bill Gates, not the same Bill Gates, got on social media and they immediately made videos and they were out there. And this made a difference for people. Not for everybody. There are people who are going to be prone to believe this. But we need to 
make it easy for people to find reliable information. Part of the problem, uh, and this is a topic for a different day, is the decline of local news media and the inability of the business model to be able to support what we need, which is uh, investigative reporting and accurate reporting about elections and politics and policy. And so that's part of what we need for trust. And we're going to have to figure out how we're going to provide that to people when people are not paying for it anymore. Rick, you've written a wonderful book. I hope everyone here will buy a copy and read it. What do you most want people to take from the book and from this conversation tonight? Well, let me say from the conversation, which is that uh, it's very easy when I speak uh, for people to walk out quite depressed. Uh, I have this experience a lot. And so what I'm saying is not a reason for despair, but a call to action. One of the maybe benefits of having a decentralized election system is that there are many places you can try to make a difference. And so uh, one of the things that uh, I think Claudia told me before we came on was that there are voter registration forms in the back of the room. If you're not registered to vote, go register to vote. Register, get some other, some other people to register to vote and think about how you can actually help to safeguard our democracy in 2024. Please join me in thanking Rick. And thank you, Erwin. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UCLA School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time. <laughs>